American Major General Charles Lee was free from British captivity. He was back with the American Army and given the honor of leading the first Continental troops out of Valley Forge in June 1778. He had his dog Spado in the saddle with him. It was summer in middle America and the newly trained Continental Army, happy to be done with slowly freezing to death at Valley Forge, was handling the weather far better than General Henry Clinton's British troops, who were struggling with full uniforms and heavy packs. Washington's staff got together to plan an attack, and Charles and a bunch of other generals advised caution. Washington typically wanted to take the fight to the weakened enemy. The vote went against him in what Alexander Hamilton called a council of midwives. Nathaniel Green, the Marquis de Lafayette, and the appropriately named Mad Anthony Wayne strongly disagreed with the council's decision. Washington asked Charles to lead the advanced detachment in what would become the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, but he declined, saying the job was far more suited for a young, volunteering general like Lafayette. But after Lafayette was appointed, Charles demanded the right, as the Army's senior major general, to command the advance. Alexander Hamilton described Lee's behavior as truly childish. Once the battle started, Washington ordered Lee to attack the British, unless there should be very powerful reasons to the contrary. It took Charles two hours to get his troops underway. While en route, he received conflicting reports of the enemy's movements, which caused him to slow his march to give him more time to evaluate the situation. He finally conceived a battle plan and lined up his troops as the temperature approached 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Charles got more conflicting reports as the battle got underway and ordered a general retreat of his division. At 11 a.m., Washington sent orders to Charles to annoy the enemy, but a Continental Pfeiffer, only a boy, informed the commander-in-chief that Lee's troops were retreating. Washington put the boy under guard to keep him from spreading his story and went to the front, where he encountered retreating soldiers. In the distance, approaching him at high speed, was General Charles Lee, retreating as fast as his horse would go. George Washington rode forward to confront him. Reports of the subsequent meeting between the two senior generals differ. One general said Washington swore at Lee till the leaves shook on the trees. Soldiers at a distance reported that Washington seemed to be in a great passion. Washington's argument was, essentially, that Lee shouldn't have asked to command the advance corps if he had not intended to attack the enemy. He turned his horse away from Lee and rode to the front to personally take command. When Charles tried to give orders, an aide had to remind him that he was no longer in charge of the division as Washington was on the battlefield. Charles was ordered to command the Continental rearguard. Charles rallied his troops against the British attack, where he was joined by Alexander Hamilton, who said he would join Lee and fight to the death. Charles replied, you must allow me to be a proper judge of what I ought to do, and told Hamilton that the ground upon which they stood was not worthy of any great sacrifice. Well, way to kill the mood, Charles. Charles did prove instrumental in halting a British advance, buying time for Washington's main army to force the enemy to retreat. He incidentally faced his old pals from the 16th Light Dragoons, who had captured him at the Widow White's Tavern, and sent them packing. After the battle, Washington and Lee met again, with Charles expecting an acknowledgement of his role in the final action of the battle, and an apology for Washington's earlier tongue-lashing. The commander-in-chief told him there was a battle still to be fought, and that he did not believe an apology was necessary. Well, way to kill the mood, George. He ordered Charles to the rear and subsequently ordered him to turn his command over to Baron von Steuben. Charles went to a tavern where he could watch the battle in the distance. 
he would never again command troops in the field. July 4th, 1778 was the second anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, but General Charles Lee wasn't listening to a reading of that famous document. He was listening to a judge advocate read the list of things he was being charged with at his court-martial. Disobedience of orders in not attacking the enemy, misbehavior before the enemy, and disrespect to the commander-in-chief. Charles pled not guilty. He believed that, had I not acted as I did, this army, and perhaps America, would have been ruined. He claimed the whole proceeding was a plot to ruin his reputation devised by Hamilton, Lafayette, and other members of Washington's military family. As to the disrespect to the commander-in-chief part, Charles had sent a letter to Washington demanding an apology for their confrontation, saying that nothing but the misinformation of some very stupid or misrepresentation of some very wicked person could have occasioned your making use of such very singular expressions as you did. Washington went on to say that neither Washington nor any of his subordinates were in a position to be in the least judges of the merits or demerits of our maneuvers, and that it was to Charles that the success of the day was entirely owing. Well, that should work. Washington replied that Lee had not followed orders. He said that Lee's letter was highly improper and said that his confrontation with Charles on the battlefield was dictated by duty and warranted by the occasion. He called Charles's retreat unnecessary, disorderly, and shameful. George Washington, as you might surmise by now, had finally had enough of Charles Lee. Charles demanded a court-martial as a venue in which he might clear his good name and be given a chance to set the record straight as he saw it. Once again, he failed to read the room, as it were. The Battle of Monmouth Courthouse was being publicized as a major continental victory, even though it was mostly a draw, and the credit was being given to Washington's leadership. This was one of those times where the political general was far more savvy than the military one. Charles was making his argument from the military facts of the battle, but George and the Congress knew the country needed a win, so Monmouth Courthouse was a win. As usual, Charles had options. He could have gone to Washington privately and smoothed things over. Charles saw the court-martial as a platform for his own vindication, but far too many witnesses told of how Charles had been unprepared and indecisive once the battle started. One officer called him clueless. Alexander Hamilton's testimony joined in on the theme of Charles's erratic, hurried, haphazard commands during the battle, but Charles reminded him of that one time when he joined him on the battlefield, offering to die with him. Hamilton's testimony was suddenly far less effective. Charles's rebuttal witnesses confirmed that orders and intelligence were often contradictory and that several battalions had retreated without Charles's knowledge. One officer affirmed that had Charles not acted as he did, the whole detachment at least must have been sacrificed. From a purely military standpoint, it was starting to look like Charles had, eventually, acted in a way that helped save the army and buy time for the Continentals to fight their way to a stalemate, which was being called a victory. He was pretty happy about it. But then the court-martial turned to that whole disrespecting the commander-in-chief thing. His letters to Washington were read aloud. Whoops. Charles was found guilty on all counts. Historian Alan C. Kate wrote, Pure justice may have been on Lee's side, but by this time considerable animus toward him had existed throughout the army. We'll get to our summary of the life and career of Charles Lee in a few minutes, but this is a pretty good distillation. Career Safety Tip, number 257. You can be right, 
and still lose. Charles's acquittal would have also been seen as a major censure of Washington's authority as commander-in-chief and perhaps would have led to his resignation. Charles forced everyone to choose between him and Washington, believing he would prevail. But the times had definitely changed. Washington's Christmas victories of 1776 and his stalwart presence at Valley Forge had cemented his role as the nation's indispensable man and began the legend that would make him the father of the country. And as always, Charles made it pretty easy to turn against him. Subsequent historical study has supported Charles's actions during the battle, but the court-martial came down to the final power and popularity contest between Washington and Lee. Benedict Arnold, himself no stranger to being an outcast, wrote that Washington's popularity and Lee's unpopularity made it easy for the court-martial to side with Washington. Aaron Burr, another American rogue, supported Charles and sent him a letter of support. Only Charles's reply exists, in which he tells Burr that the judges had put equity out of the question and based their decision entirely on the strength of party. One of Charles' supporters, shocked by the verdict, went to Philadelphia to rally support but found that public opinion had also turned against Lee. Charles held out some hope that Congress would overturn the court-martial's ruling, which they could do. He went to Philadelphia to lobby the members, where he did have some supporters, but all his old criticisms of Washington came back to haunt him. It was easy to see the charges against him as the culmination of his long-standing opposition to Washington and the lobbying he had done to replace him. It was suggested that the Congress review the charges against Lee separately so that they could protect Lee's military reputation while condemning Lee's breach in social etiquette in his letters to Washington. One of Charles's old enemies from the Battle of Charleston, Henry Drayton, the one who had set up an artillery battery and gotten criticized by Charles, was now a member of the Continental Congress, and he had not forgotten their spat. He said that dealing with the charges separately would provide cover for those delegates who didn't want to criticize Washington. His recommendation was accepted, and the charges were considered as a group. Charles wrote two articles for the Philadelphia Papers, arguing that Washington's orders at Monmouth Courthouse were substantially flawed. He also blamed his own subordinates for a most glorious opportunity lost, and said that he had a very great opinion of the British troops. Well, way to kill the mood, Charles. He argued that the court-martial and the Congress were siding with Washington out of fear, and that it was common knowledge in the army that any criticism of Washington would not be tolerated. He said that Washington wielded too much power and influence, and that this was ultimately dangerous for the life of the revolution. John Lawrence, a friend of Alexander Hamilton, challenged Lee to a duel after reading the articles. Charles had doubled down. In pursuit of saving his own reputation, he attacked the army and the Congress, as well as the country's one untouchable figure, a mistake that would later be repeated by another of our favorite train wrecks, Aaron Burr. The Continental Congress upheld the ruling of the court-martial. Charles had to deal with a duel from John Lawrence, which he escaped with a minor wound, and two more challenges from Baron von Steuben and Mad Anthony Wayne. Both duels never came to pass. By 1779, Charles saw the American government and military as little different from the quagmire he had experienced when serving in the British Army. He advised Horatio Gates to resign before he became the next victim of a personal and political smear campaign. For God's sake, he wrote, take care of yourself. There is a mine under your feet, the train ready laid. He prepared to leave for his estate in Virginia, but was, typically, beset by money troubles. 
He asked some of his old friends serving in the British Army in New York for money. The Congress reprimanded him publicly for this. Charles told the Congress that serving in their little cause had bankrupted him and that he would have fared better if he had stayed on half pay in the British service. Congress lent him 300 pounds on the condition that he stop asking for money from his old friends in the army that America was currently fighting. Charles kept up his campaign to clear his name, which could now only be done by smearing Washington's. He had a Baltimore printer publish 25 questions, one of which was whether it is salutary or dangerous, consistent with or abhorrent from the true principles of liberty and republicanism to inculcate and encourage an idea in the people that their safety, welfare, and glory depend on one man. It should be noted that Charles didn't have a problem with those sentiments when they were being said about him. He argued that Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold had accomplished far more for the cause than Washington had militarily. He pointed out the times he had been summoned by Congress to go to the defense of major strategic targets, even when Washington was already there. He claimed that his court-martial had not been handled in the same manner as other Continental officers, suggesting that the verdict was political, not military. Once again, Charles was not entirely wrong. His timing, however, was not entirely great, as usual. A Baltimore mob broke into the shop of the printer who had published Lee's queries and destroyed his type. The publisher was accosted by another mob the next morning and revealed that Lee was the author of the queries in order to save himself. George Washington, upon reading the queries, said that they demonstrated that Lee had motives still more hidden and dark. Charles Lee was put on a one-year suspension and went to his estate at Prato, Rio. He kept up a steady stream of criticism of the cause, the Congress, and the commanding general. He saw himself as one of the real and true saviors of the American cause. He said that the leaders of the revolution have a monstrously glaring propensity to monarchy or the consecration of one man on whose existence and continuation in power their whole glory, safety, and happiness must depend. He even thought that Washington planned to assassinate him. He wrote Horatio Gates that I am confident as I am of my own existence that it is the determined purpose of that dark, designing, sordid, ambitious, vain, proud, arrogant, and vindictive knave W to remove me from the face of the earth by assassination, direct or indirect. One of Gates's subordinates wrote that Lee's criticisms of the revolution's leaders, particularly Washington, was not helping his case. When it came time for Charles's suspension to end, the Congressional Board of War resolved that Major General Charles Lee be informed that Congress have no further occasion for his services in the Army of the United States of America. Charles accepted the decision and even wrote a letter apologizing for his highly improper, disrespectful, and even contumacious behavior. He admitted that his temper had gotten the best of him. Congress had the apology published, but Charles was disappointed that it didn't spark any comments in my favor. Charles's abysmal sense of timing had failed him again. The apology was too little and about a year too late. And not getting what he felt was his due for his honorable measure of apologizing, he went back on the attack, accusing the delegates of basing their decision on the pernicious principle that justice must be postponed to expedience, by which in this particular case I suppose was meant that as General Washington was considered a necessary man, he is to be humored in the sacrifice of every office whom from pique or jealousy he devotes to destruction. Then he demanded some reparations for his service, saying that his participation in the American cause had ruined him financially 
and cost him friends and connections in England. Charles threatened to return from England, but never did, traveling throughout Virginia and Maryland, borrowing money as he went. He sent an appeal to Congress in 1780 for money and protection. Not only was he broke, but he had been accused in some newspapers of accepting bribes from the British before the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse and having a part in the surrender of West Point to the enemy by his pal, Benedict Arnold. A congressional committee, which included Charles's old supporter, Sam Adams, denied the request for money, saying Charles had been appropriated quite a lot of cash by Congress already and hadn't proven that he had sustained any losses from his service. They also denied the protection request, saying that it was unworthy of the attention of Congress. Charles's health, always precarious, got worse. He still found plenty of supporters, including Nathaniel Green and James Monroe, who Charles encouraged to display more self-confidence. After the American victory at Yorktown in 1781, Charles argued that the new republic should take a few years to see if they could make a go of the whole world's first modern democracy thing, and if not, they should offer to become a British protectorate. He kept up his attacks on George Washington, claiming that the victorious general, like Julius Caesar, was on a fast track to tyranny. Still in debt, he entered into negotiations to sell Prato Rio, but by then he was dying of tuberculosis. He went to Philadelphia, where he took a room and walked around town with his dogs. As his condition worsened, he and the dogs were confined to bed. On October 3, 1782, Charles sat up in bed and shouted, Stand fast, my brave grenadiers, stand fast. Those were his last words. His dogs jumped up and started licking his hands to revive him, but it was too late. Charles's death attracted little attention. James Madison and George Washington wrote simply that Charles had died in Philadelphia. His estate was managed as well as could be, given his debts. George Washington even got back the 15 pounds Charles had borrowed from him during his stay at Mount Vernon that one time. When Charles's sister needed a copy of his will in order to settle his affairs in England, she petitioned General Washington for help. Washington went to great effort and expense to get her a copy, and sent his condolences for the loss of so near a relation who possessed many great qualities. Charles Lee was buried at Christ Church, despite not wanting to be buried in any church or churchyard. In his excellent biography of Charles Lee, Philip Pappas sums up by saying that in death, as in life, Charles Lee's wishes were thwarted and his support of liberty and his contributions to the cause of America's independence have been, in effect, forgotten by Americans which seems like a great place to start our own analysis of Charles Lee. There is simply no denying Charles's military talents or his eloquent support for the cause of American independence. His early military successes in the revolution were essential, providing a much needed boost of confidence to the ragtag army led by an inexperienced commander facing the world's foremost military power. The fact that he was able to garner powerful friends and supporters in spite of his disagreeable temperament and the high esteem in which his skills were held by both the Americans and British, laid out a clear and definite path to ultimate success and fame. So where did Charles go wrong? His ego was a major problem. Like other train wrecks we have covered, having a big ego isn't a deal breaker as long as you can deliver on your potential and recognize your place in the hierarchy. Charles never could let go of his belief that he should be in command of the American army and that Washington was no good at all. In this, he failed to realize one essential fact. A revolution and a war are two very different things. 
The first requires a refined sense of politics and decision-making that isn't all about military tactics and strategy. Even though Charles fully grasped the cause of American independence and expressed it as well as any philosopher, once he was in the army, he tunnel-visioned in on military matters. Given the job of winning the war, that's what he set out to do, political considerations aside. Which would have been fine had he coordinated military operations with the political needs of the revolution. If Charles had embraced the role of Washington's loyal second-in-command and military expert, the two might have been an effective team that accomplished both the tangible and intangible successes needed to win both the war and the revolution. But Charles just couldn't help himself. Like our other favorite train wrecks, he was no good at reading the situation in which he found himself, and he saw too much of the world through a self-aggrandizing lens. What was best for Charles in the short term was always at the top of the list of his priorities, even if it meant his cause and career would suffer in the long run. The people lined up against him, particularly George Washington and leaders in Congress, were playing a long game. Charles was only interested in right now. Charles had an overinflated sense of his own worth. Once he saw the revolution as being all about military victories, in his mind, Washington became unnecessary and Charles became essential. But Washington's winter victories in 1776 and 1777 changed everything. Washington became the country's indispensable man while Charles was in British custody, a fact Charles ignored repeatedly to his own significant detriment. When confronted with this drastically changed situation, Charles plowed ahead with his beliefs and opinions, making enemies he didn't have to. He also drastically misjudged George Washington, or let his opinion of the commanding general be colored by jealousy. Washington, a student of the ancient Roman Cincinnatus, who voluntarily gave up dictatorial power when his job was done, and Cato the Younger, who gave up everything for the sake of the Republic, was never going to be a tyrant. He wasn't vain or self-seeking. The cause was all that mattered. Accusing Washington of wanting glory and power might have been Charles projecting his own feelings on his commander. Had he been able to see and understand Washington's true character and intentions, things could have been very different. Like our other train wrecks, Charles had plenty of things going for him and lots of opportunities to keep the train from crashing. In the end, Charles Lee was the cause of his own downfall. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some free bonus episodes that don't quite fit with our main narrative. It's also a great way to keep the show going. A dollar a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks. And thank you. If you have your own ideas about how to shut your ego down and work well with less qualified bosses, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical trainwreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we take up the story of another Revolutionary War hero who had his eye on Washington's job, as well as those who agreed that Horatio Gates might just be a better choice to lead the army to victory. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 9. 
There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now, I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now, the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff, to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures. And I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts.